0: today on Edge Effects, out loud. Nathan Keel, writer and integrative biology PhD candidate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, reads his essay, Studying Yellowstone's Burn Scars to Reveal Its Future, a piece on exploring and understanding a changing fire ecology in Yellowstone National Park. A written version of this essay appears on our website, edgeeffects.net. Today on the podcast, we hear it brought to life.
1: you wanna come to three, three to nine, you're gonna sign your name like gentlemen and standing in line. It's time to meet our family.
0: Hello, hello, hello.
1: A little salad rub. Mm. Some nuts here. A ant. An ant here. It's lunchtime, and we slip a few electrolyte tablets into our water bottles. They're, they're selling raw milk in Portlandia. Yeah. Though temperatures are in the 70s and the infrequent breeze is pleasant, the dry air and beating sun leave my fingers cracked and brow caked with dried sweat. I squint west into the piercing blue sky in search of developing thunderstorms and, seeing none, turn back to a lunch of salami, cheese, and trail mix. Yellowstone National Park is known for many things. Bears, geysers, bison, wolves. But we aren't here to sightsee. Well, not like everyone else. Nearly 10 miles from the nearest road, we're here because of fire. Hey, bear! The forests of Greater Yellowstone are shaped by fire. Mm -hmm. And then we see this little guy, this is an epilobium, or sorry, a chimerian. Chimerian uh, angustifolium, it's fireweed. Occurring every 100 to 300 years throughout the last 10 millennia, large, lightning-ignited fires burn during particularly hot, dry summers. And this is the one I was talking about that puts out the big, like, spike of purple flowers. Come fall's first snow, what's left in the fire scar is a charred landscape with little visible plant life remaining. Fireweed is a really common uh, species that comes in after fire. It is uh, wind dispersed and really prolific. So you imagine when a fire comes through, everything's dead. There's a ton of bare mineral soil. It's perfect for these seeds to just come in. Um, The first year they establish, Second year, they produce flowers and start infilling by the third year. So it's a it's a really cool uh, little um, recovery dynamic. Such stand-replacing fires kill most trees in the fire scar and create a complex mosaic of burned and unburned forest, often across hundreds of square miles. outside I am for Getting back and like doing our presentations and oh, yeah. like a couple months into the semester being Her like, labs. This is what happened in the summer. <laughs> Look at the chaos <laughs> this is <what> we saw. <laughs> Look at the chaos. This mosaic is evident from our lunchtime vantage point. Out on the Madison Plateau, one of Yellowstone's many forested high elevation plateaus, we gaze across a flat, dry expanse riddled with standing dead trees or snags and fallen logs that were killed by fire over 30 years ago. With few young trees blocking our view, we can clearly make out the surrounding unburned forest behind the snags. Cool, interesting. Hmm. Just the, all of it, you know, like why? (laughs) Well, you think wind is still coming from that way. Right. This is jarring to me. Being able to see hundreds of yards in all directions is not the norm in a 34-year-old fire scar in Yellowstone. 41, yeah. 41 meters away and it's still, I mean, this works, like if we moved 10 meters that way, it'd be 51 meters away and the whole plot would have no trees. Mm -hmm. Indeed, trying to understand the fact that there are still so few trees coming back decades after fire is exactly why we're here. The point of the summer is just to, we're getting to these areas that um, some people in the lab and other researchers have never been to, and we just want to try to capture as much of a snapshot of what those look like as possible. To imagine what a typical post-fire forest in Yellowstone looks like, picture a healthy patch of grass in your neighborhood. The individual blades are so tightly packed that the soil beneath isn't visible. Now, Imagine each blade of grass is, instead, a 10-foot-tall pine tree with enough sharp twigs and needles to make long sleeves and safety glasses a necessity. It's getting dense. Foresters call these dog hair forests. We like to call them dense towns. They're an incredible part of the natural disturbance recovery cycle across much of greater Yellowstone and are emblematic of the extensive areas that burned during the summer of 1988. That year, over a third of Yellowstone National Park burned, a thousand square miles of which was standard placing fire. Special fire-adapted traits in lodgepole pine, the dominant tree species across Yellowstone's forests, help explain how an area where every tree burned in 1988 transforms into a dense town just three decades later. Though easily killed by fire, some lodgepole pine are serotonous. They form closed cones sealed by resin that are only opened by the heat from a fire. Over time, these cones accumulate on a tree so that, when a fire moves through, many cones open and simultaneously disperse thousands of seeds onto the newly exposed soil. Even if only a few trees possess serotonous cones, forests quickly come back. If nearly all of them do, well, dense towns. Yeah, it's definitely
0: going to come back pretty
1: darn dense. Yeah, it is. But fires and climate are changing, and with them the forests of Greater Yellowstone. Average temperatures in Yellowstone National Park have already warmed 2 degrees Celsius, about 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, since 1980, and more warming is expected. With warming comes more of those hot, dry summer conditions conducive to big fire years like 1988. Indeed, many researchers expect every year could be a big fire year by the end of the century, an extreme departure from the historical fire return intervals of 100 to 300 years. With such frequent fire, there's growing concern that forests won't be able to recover. By 2100, dense towns may be long gone, with areas like our lunch spot taking their place. Yeah, it's areas like these. You get up here, and I mean, it's this is really sparse, but I give it enough time and it would. Be forested again, I'd say. Uh-huh. But do we do we have? I guess the do we have enough time is what the concern might be.
0: Before it burns again. Yeah.
1: After lunch, we pack up our gear and walk to the next sampling location. As I clamber over the skeletons of trees born at the turn of the 18th century, I can't help but think that we're looking at the future of Yellowstone. But understanding what exactly that future looks like takes more than imagination. It takes weeks of intensive field work. Over the next two days, we will visit eight plots in this small section of the fire scar and collect information on how forests are, or in this case are not, recovering. Let's pull the pin on this plot. Yeah. So I was looking at the map. Um, there's two more potential plots depending on the timing. There's a high far from seed source on the way to one that's near to seed source. So we can do the high-far first, mm-hmm. and then from there, um, see if uh, um, we have time to go on to the other near one. Cool. Good. In each, we identify and count each plant species, quantify how much carbon is stored in recovering vegetation and downed logs, and determine if tree seedlings and young saplings show us that a forest may still come back, given enough time. To do this, we divide and conquer. All right, let's bring compasses, uh, tapes, and chaining pins to plot center and start setting up the plot. And once we get out there, I'll just steal somebody to help me with um, some of the plot center measurements. While Zach, Maddie, and Eileen lay out transects for counting trees and identifying grasses and wildflowers, I record plot measurements like elevation and distance to unburned forest. All the 30s, leave the 15 and leave that. Maddie, you're going to have to go to your left. Go. You should, like, practice your, like... Line bones. up with so that snag. Once transects are laid, I focus on identifying every plant species in the plot and estimate its cover. Plant communities. Yeah. Flower
0: clusters? Purplish or bronze? Okay. Open pyramid to egg-shaped clusters. Yeah. And, and it's totally pyramid.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, panicles. Two to six centimeters long and wide. Spreading branches, spikelets Mm -hmm. flattened, Mm -hmm.
1: three to six flowered, four to six millimeters long, and two-thirds as wide. Maddie and Zach count and measure trees.
0: Hello everyone. Uh, Here we are measuring trees that are greater than breast height along the transect. We are taking the basal diameter, the diameter at breast height, the overall height of the tree, which we either um, will do with a laser rangefinder or a two-meter long stick, and we're also counting the whorls as well.
1: 11 centimeters at the base.
0: Mm Alright.
1: And Eileen takes measurements on downed logs for our carbon storage estimates. So basically what we've done is lay out a 15-meter transect that is 30 degrees off of the cardinal directions, and then um, everywhere along that transect, starting from five meters, we count the start and stop of every log, and then also the diameter of that log, and then we class it based on its decomposition as well. It takes us anywhere from 45 minutes to two hours, depending on the plot. On our best days, we sample five plots. On our worst and wettest, We sample only one. If you want to tell me about your day, Zach, feel free. (laughs) It was bad. (laughs) Yeah. But in serious, no. That was made it really hard to measure trees. <laughs> turns out, <laughs> turns out when it's really raining, it's hard to collect data. <laughs> yeah, it was really really hard. It was very disorienting. Yeah, but yeah, definitely a experience. Yeah. Maybe. 6 o'clock on, um, uh, I think it's a Thursday, but we're on the third day of, um, our second backcountry trip. Uh, we are out in the, uh, Grizzly Lake, Mount Holmes area, kind of up near, Mammoth in Yellowstone National Park for those who are familiar with the area. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's the state of things as of uh, July 21st <laughs> this uh, Thursday morning from my tent from somewhere in the Yellowstone backcountry. Oh, it's cold. I have to get up and boil water. (sighs) Once we are done here, we will pack up camp, hike out to the car, take a few days off in town to recharge and resupply, then head to the next cluster of plots in another corner of the vast Yellowstone Wilderness. Throughout this summer, we will be anywhere from 2.5 to 25 miles from the nearest road. We'll ascend steep mountainsides with no trail to guide us, hitch boat rides down Yellowstone Lake from National Park Service personnel, hike and sample in seemingly unending rain, and fall asleep with nothing but a thin tent separating us from the stars. All told, we'll hike over 150 miles Gain the equivalent elevation to hiking Mount Everest from sea level, and sample 55 different plots in Yellowstone National Park and the adjacent Teton Wilderness. The next morning, Sunday morning, the 31st, we are canoeing out and uh, getting picked up, getting the boat right out, and we'll be um, back in the front country for a couple days before our next our next adventure down along. Uh, not too far south of here actually down along the south boundary of Yellowstone. It's been good so far. Actually, yeah, today we we hit 30, we hit 30 plots, which was uh pretty exciting. We still have uh eight sampling days left over these next few trips. And so if we average 3 plots a day, which we've been averaging more than 3 plots a day, that'll be 24 more plots and we'll be up to um 54 on the season, which is very very exciting and uh, impressive, honestly, considering what we're doing, uh, all the backpacking and all the time that takes. Um, you know, our goal going into this was was sixty, definitely kind of like a stretch goal going into it. I was hoping we'd get there, but anything over fifty, and I'm feeling really good about that. So, uh, yeah, been a good field season so far. I'm more than halfway, both in terms of time and number of plots. So, what ties these far flung adventures and sampling locations together? is their lack of forest recovery. What motivates us to visit all of them and collect information on plant communities, tree regeneration, and carbon stocks, is to understand what failed forest recovery means for the future of these burned landscapes. But our concern isn't just for Yellowstone's future. That future is here now. Fires across the Mountain West are burning more forest each year, and more of that fire is burning as stand replacing fire. Recent fires in 2016, Yellowstone's biggest fire year since 1988, reburned young forests before serotonous cones had a chance to form, so few tree seedlings established after fire. And those hot, dry conditions fanning the flames one year make it awfully difficult for young tree seedlings to survive, let alone thrive, the next. If we are to have any sense of what these currently forested landscapes are to look like in 50 years, we must first understand how these changes are affecting them now. I think if you gave this place a couple hundred years, it'd definitely become a forest. Mm -hmm. Um, Guess the concern is with increasing fire frequency and warmer, drier climate. Do we have that amount of time to let it recover? Yeah, or would that, you know, result in kind of constantly intermediate-aged forests? What what would that mean for, like, you know, the species of, like, plants and animals if you constantly are getting this intermediately-aged forest versus, you know, one larger loop of getting a 250-year-old forest and then going back to a secondary succession? Or even 300, 400-year-old forest when we're talking at this elevation, yeah. What we see is modeling through 2,100 forest age Forests get younger across the landscape, as you might expect, Mm -hmm. with increasing fire frequency. Mm -hmm. Um, Which has, I mean, that that could have a lot of impacts on a lot of different species that might rely on older forests or, yeah, I mean, it's, I think there's, there's a lot of effects. By late afternoon, we stumble into camp. We are hungry, mildly dehydrated and covered in dirt. Fortunately, camp is right next to a lake and a swim feels better in this moment than any shower could. Dinner is dehydrated chili with instant mashed potatoes and tuna, and tonight we're sharing camp with someone who's through-hiking the Continental Divide Trail. After introductions and dinner, our campfire conversations remain light, sparse as the forests we're studying. Words aren't needed when the gentle peace that is evening in the Yellowstone backcountry will do. Since our return to Wisconsin in mid-August, I've begun parsing through all of the information we collected during our six-week whirlwind of a field season. So far, we've learned that these areas of poor forest recovery following the 1988 fires are primarily at higher elevations and further from unburned forests. Serotonous lodgepole pine don't grow at higher elevations. Instead, Engelmann spruce, subalpine fir, and non-serotonous lodgepole pine all species with no ability to recolonize quickly following fire dominate. Recovery can only begin once seeds reach the fire scar from surrounding unburned forest.
0: Oh, look, a baby lodgepole. And another one. And a baby whitebird.
1: If that seed source is far, forest recovery could take centuries. But if these areas burn again before forests recover, an increasingly likely outcome in our warming world, forest loss could be indefinite. In some areas we visited this summer, this seems to be the case, with few to no young trees or seedlings in sight. But this summer and our experiences traversing the wilds of Yellowstone took us beyond data. I learned that organizing and leading a full field season is incredibly challenging. As it turns out, backpacking is hard. Um, it's uh, physically really challenging. I mean, we're our next trip, we're hiking 12 miles to go camp, and then hiking for three straight days to different plots, and then hiking 12 miles back out. Doing so in grizzly bear country is harder. The the, the grass is very flattened uh, around. The, uh, the bits and pieces of what looked like an elk or a deer, probably an elk, I guess they're more abundant. But um, yeah, so we are going vacating the area quickly. Definitely don't want to be near any angry grizzlies that are protecting their, their kill or their carcass. Doing so while collecting data on post-fire forest recovery is even harder. It's mentally exhausting, emotionally exhausting, because you're waking up, and your body's sore, or you're tired, and you keep you keep going to work. Or maybe you're climbing 1,500 feet up a mountain with no trail, and you, you gotta keep going. Or maybe you get to the top, and you still have to sample three plots. It's hard. As time has passed, though, and I've settled into my semesterly routine of meetings, research, and coursework, I found myself reflecting more on this summer's joys than its difficulties. Less and less, I remember the stress of the field season. More and more, I remember the sun, the plants, the mountains, and the stars. Looking forward 50 years, I'm confident the sun and stars will still hang over Yellowstone Lake, and the Absaroka Mountains will still define its horizon. But I am also confident that Yellowstone's forests, where they occur and what plants and animals they contain, will change. Our choice now is to decide what to do about it. Shall we resist it in some locations? maintaining old forests to serve as seed sources for the surrounding burn scar? Should we direct it, encouraging the establishment of fire-adapted tree species and managing for more frequent fire? Or, seeing these as dynamic systems, shall we accept change as a natural outcome of our warming planet? At least now, having studied the areas where forests haven't recovered after over three decades, we know what one scenario in that future could look like. hold them. No
0: that was nathan keel reading his essay studying yellowstone's burn scars to reveal its future for edge effects out loud where our articles get brought to life a written version of this piece along with images links to background information and the author's contact information appears on our website EdgeEffects.net. You've been listening to Edge Effects Out Loud, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Nathan Keel, Claire Sullivan, and me, Rudy Molinick. Sound design and field recordings by Nathan Keel. The research described in this article was conducted on the past and present homelands of the Shoshone, Bannock, Crow, and other indigenous nations and tribes forcibly removed during the creation of Yellowstone National Park. All research presented in this article was conducted with permits granted by Yellowstone National Park and the U.S. Forest Service. Funding for this research was provided by the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Hilldale Undergraduate Faculty Research Fellowship and Vilas Trust, and the National Park Service Fuels Reserve Fund. Special thanks to Monica Turner for suggestions that improved this article. Becky Smith, Diane Abendroth, Alyssa Milo, Annie Carlson, Eric Reinertsen, and Art Truman for assistance with the field season logistics, and Zach Osevich, Maddie DeMarco, and Eileen Mavenkamp for essential help with field data collection. The music you're hearing is by Wolfman Summit. You can get all our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and review, or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag, or find us at our website, edgefx.net.